You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, June 9th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, folks. So it was June 9th, 1905. Anyone want to guess as to what happened? Einstein, general relativity is 1905. Yep. Anytime you hear the year 1905, you have to automatically think Einstein. Mm -hmm. Because that was the year that his seminal papers, his most seminal papers were published in the Annalen der Physik. This particular one was titled, On a Heuristic Point of View Concerning the Generation and Conversion of Light. In this paper, Einstein framed unambiguously the hypothesis that light in its interaction with matter behaves like a particle with a discrete amount of quantum of energy proportional to its frequency. Over the next two decades, the hypothesis was to be verified experimentally, leading to his Nobel Prize for Physics in 1921. For some reason, when I think 1905, I, I have this feeling that Einstein did what he did like in the 20s, not that early. For some, I don't know why my dates are screwy that way. Well, the 20s is when he was really becoming a, a, a rock star of science and right. world famous. Right. But the papers he cranked out, what did he crank out, four or five papers in 1905 that were all earth-shattering in terms of science? In about a six-month period, that's right. He had four, four papers published. So don't forget, don't forget though, no. that 1915 is when he came out with general relativity. In 1905, yeah, but it, I, it was, it was uh, special relativity. Special relativity. Plus, yeah. plus what I think what Evan is talking about is the, what he won the Nobel Prize for in, in 21, the, uh, photoelectric. the photoelectric effect, yes. By the end of his life, though, they should have given him the prize by then, right? They knew... For relativity, you mean? Yeah. It was controversial for a long time. Yeah, but by then he already had one, so, you know. Yeah, plus... <laughs> spread I mean, it around a little. I, th- I think, I'm not sure when, but it, it, it did take a little, quite a while for, for the technology to actually be there to really definitively nail a lot of these tests. Because you, you keep hearing about tests that are done even today to, uh, t- to show that he was correct. But, Bob, do you think anyone's going to get the Nobel Prize for discovering life on Titan? <laughs> Ooh, nice segue, Steve. It's <laughs> very natural. Yeah, oh yeah. I don't think so. I don't think it was going to... I would say no. Not so far, anyway. Yeah, well, if you guys recently... If you guys read the, the uh, UK's Telegraph site, you may have come across the following headline that does seem uh, Nobel-worthy. It said, Titan, NASA scientists discover evidence that alien life exists on Saturn's moon. So in a word, that title is wrong, but the but the subtitle, but the subtitle, you see a little uh, little Perry esque uh, flavor to that word, um, but the subtitle yes. of the article was a little more accurate. Uh, the, the subtitle was "Evidence that Life Exists on Titan." One of Saturn's biggest moons appears to have been uncovered by NASA scientists. Now even that one is still it's better than the first title, but it's still kind of misleading. They should have said that evidence that life may exist. I mean, these people were really pushing it. You know, but once you dig through the hyperbole of, of some of these you know, irresponsible websites, there is some pretty interesting, uh, if less dramatic, stuff going on in Titan. Now, but before I get into the news, though, I, I feel compelled to kind of reintroduce Titan, the moon Titan to everybody. It's not only is it Saturn's largest moon, it's the second biggest moon in the entire solar system after Ganymede. Um, it's the only known moon to have a significant atmosphere. It has lakes, fog, rainfall, but no water. 
And the, speaking of lakes, Titan is the only place except Earth in the solar system that we've discovered that has stable liquid on its, on its surface. And it, the thing is pretty big. It's 50% larger uh, than the moon uh, diameter anyway, and its volume is greater than the planet Mercury. So this is quite a place. I think we're going to be hearing a lot about this, especially if some of this news pans out. So what happened here, to really do some justice to this news, you've got to go back to 2004, I think, uh, biochemist Steve Benner and, uh, and his buddies proposed that liquid hydrocarbons on Titan could be the basis for life. I think he was the first person to really suggest this. Now, hydrocarbons, we've, you know, we've all, I think we've all heard of hydrocarbons, but they're basically just molecules made of hydrogen and carbon. You know, that's pretty much it. It's like methane and ethane. Now, when I say the basis for life, uh, that could be a little bit misleading. What that means is that um, methane can be used as a solvent, like water is on the Earth. It's not. It's not like the life is. Uh, you know, the, the cellular structures are made out of this. It's just that the solvent. You know, just right. take, You know, take water, replace it, put methane, and that's that's kind of like the fluid of life. That all the important chemistry is going on within yeah. the methane. If you're thirsty on Titan, you reach for a glass of methane. Right. So, uh, so then in 2005, I think, was the next milestone. Two papers were written at that time, and they went into detail about the possibility of this so-called methanogenic life and how, how this life could derive its energy, at least theoretically. Uh, Chris McKay and Heather Smith predicted in their paper that such organisms, could, they could actually consume hydrocarbons on the surface of Titan and that this activity would be noticeable by us, I think is what, she was, what they were getting at, we would notice this as a lack of acetylene and hydrogen on the surface. So it would be, if, we, if we studied the surface and found these gases lacking, or I guess maybe liquids, then it, would, it could be significant. So, and that is exactly what these new studies provided by the, the Cassini probe is, is telling us. Uh, McKay said that the data suggests that these depletions are not just due to a lack of production, but are due to some kind of chemical reaction at the surface – Right on t- Titan, it seems like something is going on, some sort of chemical reactions, uh, whether they're biological or not, we don't, we don't know. Then there's another little tidbit that thrown in here, uh, the hydrocarbon ethane. Now, this ethane isn't really involved in this latest discovery, but it's important because it's yet another hydrocarbon on Titan that could be used as an energy source, and it's, it's depleted. It does not, there's not enough of this ethane that our theories are telling us should be there. Actually, I read some accounts. People are saying that there should be like meters, like three, six, nine feet of of this ethane on on Titan, and it's not there. So no no one has been able to find uh, the amounts of ethane that we think should be there. So th- this hydrocarbon is depleted just like uh, the other ones are. So what made this especially interesting to me is that scientists predicted this. This is what really makes it significant, I think. Yeah. You know, they predicted this before this was any of this was discovered. So successful predictions are always more compelling than just you know finding an anomaly and proposing an explanation for it. It reminds me, you know, people going through Nostradamus's predictions and they find hints that oh yeah, he predicted World War II and he predicted the rise of Hitler. You know, big deal. Show me, show me him predicting an event before it happens, and then maybe people will start listening. Not afterwards. Still, given everything that I've said, that doesn't mean that there's definitely these little methanogens crawling around Titan. Uh, in fact, four possible explanations for these data have been identified, and only uh, and two of them are pretty cool. Uh, the first two aren't, though. I, most scientists will agree that most likely the recent findings uh, that there's been a change in the amount of hydrogen on the surface is that it's just wrong. They, they made a mistake. 
this wasn't a direct measurement of the amount of hydrogen on the surface. It was kind of an indirect measurement. So perhaps, you know, perhaps their calculations are in error. That seems, you know, maybe that's probably most likely. And so until this is replicated, uh, people really shouldn't be freaking out uh, at all about, about this. Mm-hmm. Now, the second most likely explanation is that the hydrogen is being moved around in the atmosphere in some, some unidentified way and that this is skewing their calculations somehow. Um, so that's probably uh, the second most likely reason why yeah. uh, to explain this. But number three, three get, it starts getting interesting with the third most likely explanation that if hydrogen is really being lost on the surface, but it's through some non-biological process, uh, then there must be some sort of catalyst on the surface of Titan that can accomplish this at the, the surface temperature of Titan, of Titan, which is 95 Kelvin. Um, so that would be, you know, that, that might sound boring to a lot of people, and, but it would be quite a startling uh, find, chemically speaking. And then finally, the fourth, the fourth most likely explanation, at least according to, uh, to some of these scientists, especially McKay, is that the, uh, the hydrogen, that hydrogen, acetylene, and ethane are being depleted because there is an entirely new form of life on Titan that eats hydrocarbons and breathes gaseous hydrogen and uh, uses methane instead of water as a solvent. So, uh, so my, I'm hoping for number four. So we're going to have to wait. You know, we have to wait until we get some more results back, so, or somebody replicates this, and 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 ultimately, hopefully, we'll send a probe to Titan specifically, yeah. specifically looking for this. I one scientist predicted it's going to take. If that's done, it could take quite a while. You know, he said 10, 20, or 30 years, which is extremely discouraging, very disappointing if that's the case. But I think if we get a lot, hopefully if we get a lot of scientists replicating this research and it looks really good, that we might actually have something going on there, then maybe we could, uh, you know, press the fast forward button and, and get something there quicker. So, Bob, if a creature that is based on methane instead of water talked to you, would his breath smell like farts? <laughs> I'd say absolutely, Jay. If, uh, but of course, if I actually got close enough to breathe that in, I think my lungs would freeze anyway. So actually, I would probably smell nothing. My question is, and I'm sorry that it's not yeah. directly related to what you reported on, but I was thinking about the the fact that Titan is a moon, and you know, I was thinking about the size of the planet. You're thinking about know- the Death Star again, weren't you? It was about the Death Star. God damn it, Rebecca. <laughs> no, but my question is, Titan revolves around Saturn. Is Titan big enough to have its own moon? A little moonlit? Um, and, and then I was moon. thinking, how far down can you go? The, the answer is no. And the reason for that is because uh, any, anything that would be a moon of Titan would, would simply be captured by the gravity of Saturn. Right? It's the same reason that mm-hmm. Mercury and Venus do not have moons. Any moons of those planets would just be captured by the sun and would become planets of the sun. Okay. They're just too close. It's not that they're too small. They're too close. So Titan's too close to Saturn for it to have its own moon. But I've, I've never heard of a moon having a moon. Now, to clarify, it's not theoretically impossible if you had a moon that was really far away from its parent planet. It could theoretically hold on to a small moon of its own. Uh, after all, we've you know we have placed satellites around our own moon, so it's, it's theoretically possible. But it's so unlikely that uh, there isn't a single example in our solar system of a moon with its own moon. So it's probably best to say that it's just an extremely unlikely configuration because the parent star or planet would likely just steal the object for itself. And I think Kurt Vonnegut should be uh, recognized as the one who predicted life on Titan when he wrote his book, The Sirens of Titan. 
back in the 1960s or 70s. So, okay. Kurt Vonnegut was ahead of his time. As usual. Well, let's move on. Uh, Rebecca, you're going to tell us why vultures are being threatened in South Africa. Yes, for a very odd reason at first, um, because of the World Cup. Mm-hmm. That is a, huh? it's true. The World Cup is, um, I know you guys as, you know, Americans probably don't realize that this is happening right now. But apparently a lot of people here care about a soccer thing, tournament. <laughs> um, that I do, I'm aware of it, but I just don't care. Yeah. <laughs> soccer is my 44th favorite sport. Well, it happens really? every, um, I think it's every every four years, the World Cup. And people go absolutely batty over it. I mean, it's, yeah, soccer is just absolutely everywhere on television, um, in ads, everywhere you turn around, it's soccer fever. And the same is true around the world, um, particularly in South Africa. And South African gamblers are looking for any way they can to get an advantage over their peers. So, uh, unfortunately, a certain number of them believe that they can inherit the ability to accurately predict the finals of the World Cup by smoking the brains of a particular kind of rare vulture. What? Yes. Wow. Dried brains. How, did, um, how do you come up with that? I mean, that's what I thought, too. Who thought to dry out the brains and light them up? Yeah, I know. It sounds like the sort of thing that, you know, you think of when you're really out there on mushrooms or something, hanging yeah, out you with have your to friends. Be already like, high. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What if we smoke that vulture's brains? Yes. Yes. <laughs> now, Rebecca, do they roll it into a blunt? Like, what do we got? What are we talking? I believe they pack it into a bowl. Okay. No, I don't know. I <laughs> I don't know the specifics of um of how they smoke it. But it's um uh. it's part of a type of magic known as um I believe it's pronounced muti magic. And we've talked about this um sort of thing in the past. Muti magic is um can be an overarching term for any kind of um, alternative medicine or um, traditional medicine in South Africa, but it can I believe also... it means tree medicine, right? The moody. Um, yeah, tree. I think. Well, it, it's derived from um, a word for uh, that means roots. Basically, a part of muti um, is occasionally, unfortunately, consuming body parts. And mm-hmm. it's not always animals. In the past, it's been linked to people murdering children or the elderly in order to derive some power from um, taking their, their body parts. So in this case, it's resulted in the Cape Vulture becoming, uh, I mean, the Cape Vulture is already threatened, a threatened species. And this trend has scientists a bit worried that it's, um, it's going to get very bad for the bird. They say that it could suffer a population collapse within 12 years, thanks to people killing the vulture for traditional, quote unquote, traditional medicine use. So, Kind of an odd story that the um, 
the World Cup is indirectly contributing to the uh, death of a species. Jeez, it doesn't even seem like traditional medicine use. I mean, you you would think, okay, so you take a rhino horn, grind it up, you know, and that's supposed to prolong your erection or something. That's medical. This mm-hmm. is gamblers enabling themselves to predict match results. How the heck is that even medical? Well, it's like, it's like voodoo. It's just sort of all mixed together. It's just the mysticism, the local mysticism, their version of voodoo. It's used for medicine and healing and also good luck and long life. And but whatever, it seems you know. very specific, Steve. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're saying that they can predict the outcome of a sporting event by smoking the brain of this animal. I know? think that it, um, they, they believe that it will give them predictive powers, not just when it comes to football, but in anything. <laughs> it's just that right now there's a lot of money to be made in predicting uh, the results of football matches. Right. So, um, unfortunately, it's led to apparently an increase in the number of killings. And that's not all. I was reading about just the you know superstition surrounding the World Cup in general, and in South Africa, a lot of the, the, the teams undergo a lot of moody rituals um, other than this, not just predicting the outcome, but like they'll they'll have the players, you know, bathe in the blood of certain animals, or they'll you know inflict little wounds in them and then rub some kind of powders in there. So there's all kinds of good luck rituals or in, in performance enhancing rituals that they do. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say- be surprised. And I yeah. mean, and that isn't even just a, a moody thing. I mean, I- any sport, you know, um, you get these supernatural superstitious practices but uh yeah i'm not i'm not surprised to see superstitious things like that really take off this time of year you'd figure somebody would be like okay guys you know stop bathing in animal blood and cutting yourself and rubbing ash in the wound and just practice a little more (laughs) take the half an hour it would take to take that bath and you know kick the ball 50 more times right yeah, although, you know, again, some people have pointed out that the, the superstitious aspect of sports is pretty universal. This is just how it's culturally manifesting, you know, in this part of the world. But it's no different than all the other kinds of rituals that people do before a sporting event, both fans and players. Or, you know, is it really any different than praying, you know, before a game for you to beat your opponents in a sporting match? I mean, it's... It is in this case because you're killing you're killing vultures. Well, they, <laughs> there's, an un- there's a, a, there's a negative side consequence as well. Yeah, I, I believe we've talked about this a bit before, but there have been some really interesting studies that have shown that the amount of superstitious behavior increases the more your uh, chances depend on on luck or on right. randomness. So, um, for instance, a a, a baseball player might um, not exhibit as much superstitious behavior as a, a poker player. Um, it, the more you, you have to rely on skill, the more you would practice as opposed to resorting to superstition. Yeah. But there was also a recent study that showed that, that sports fans in general are more superstitious than non-sports fans. Mm. So I think just they, whatever, I guess that when you become more superstitious in one way, it makes you more superstitious in general. And that, that also goes along with other sort of psychological research showing the same basic effect. When people feel out of control in one way, their, act, their pattern recognition actually gets ramped up and they become more likely to see pareidolia, for example, you know, faces and random noise. It makes sense that sports fans would be even more superstitious than the actual players since 
they have no control over over how right. the team is going to perform. And right. so, you know, and that brings it back around to the fact that the people who are smoking these vulture brains aren't the players. They're the gamblers. <laughs> right. They're the yeah. ones who literally have no control over the results and have nothing to rely on but superstition. Rebecca, you ever wonder, like, just how harsh those brains are? Well, no. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> thought never, never crossed my mind. All right, well, let's move on. We're going to do some follow-up on the H1N1 pandemic of 2009. You guys thought that we were done with this topic, but we're going to do some follow-up uh, because the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, published an article uh, essentially criticizing the World Health Organization, WHO, of uh, not properly disclosing potential conflicts of interest among the experts they relied upon in declaring a pandemic and the pharmaceutical industry, specifically companies that uh, stood to benefit by selling their flu vaccines. So, of course, this has ca- caused... The, the expected, you know, hysterical proclamations from certain people like, you know, Mike Adams from Natural News and other, you know, health gurus that, um, you know, trying to make it into an actual conspiracy that they were taking kickbacks and it was all fake and the pandemic was fake. But that, of course, that's not what the BMJ article was saying. And that's all nonsense. Uh, but first, let me back up a little bit and and give you the numbers. So now that all is said and done, we're pretty much at the end of the H1N1 flu, at least in North America. There is still a a wave going on in the Southern Hemisphere. But now that the flu season is over, the CDC has pretty much what we would call final numbers on on the H1N1 pandemic. Uh, In the United States, there were between 43 and 89 million cases of H1N1 in 2009. 43 and 89 million? Million, yeah, between April 2009 and April 2010. Well, that's a big range. But that's a big range. Remember, they weren't testing people to confirm, so so you have to estimate, yeah. Uh, So the mid-level of that range would be about 61 million, so that's about the number of people who were infected. There were between 195 and 403 hospitalizations, and there were between 8 and 18,000 deaths. Uh, so, you know, again, the mid-level range was about 12,000 deaths. Uh, so that's less than the typical flu season. Typical flu season can kill between twenty and 30,000 uh, people. Uh, interestingly, and this was totally unexpected, and it took me a while to figure out that this is actually what was happening. I actually called the guy at the CDC to clarify this for me uh, when I first wrote about this, that the, the seasonal flu was a no-show this year. There actually was no what? seasonal flu. Wow. Yeah. What? There was just the H1N1. So I, I was crap. Yeah, I was thinking. All right, there's going to be twenty, thirty thousand deaths from seasonal flu, plus another fifteen to twenty from H1N1. Even at you know the estimates, even by last fall. So we're going to get a double whammy. But it turns out we had the H1N1, which was you know maybe half of a, of your typical flu season. And no seasonal flu. And they still, the guy said from the CDC, they have no explanation for that. It'll probably take a couple of years to figure out why that happened. Holy but it's, crap. It's just the quirkiness of these kind of infections. So it worked out well. Except if you look at just the raw numbers, but, it, but the difference was that H1N1 killed young people, pregnant yeah. women, and children. 
whereas the seasonal flu tends to kill you know the 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 sick and the elderly specifically the elderly so, you so in, know, terms of, in terms of bodies we lost less but in terms less. of man years we lost potential future man years we lost a lot more yeah so it's hard it's hard to say how does that all sort out in terms of how severe it was you know right. how do you how do you you know it's really hard emotionally ethically whatever to compare the life of a you know twenty five year old pregnant woman to a seventy year old person it's not you know of course we we take the view that every life is valuable, but when you're talking about public health and these kind of statistics those those things do matter uh, and the reason for the decreased and this also may be why it wasn't as severe by the way that uh, the reason for the the uh, decreased deaths among the elderly is that it, the elderly population was partially protected by earlier exposures to h one n one epidemics. So if that weren't the case, maybe we would have had this plus the usual, you know, 20, 30,000 deaths among the elderly. It would have been a super flu season. But again, that wasn't expected, but that's what turned out to be the case. Wait, Steve, the elderly were protected uh, from H1N1, but they weren't protected from regular seasonal flu. No, that, that, this is the explanation for why the H1N1 had a lower death rate among the elderly population. Oh, yes, yes. Not for the absence of the seasonal flu, which is, it still has no explanation. So that's the postmortem on the H1N1 pandemic. It was much less than, of course, our worst fears. It was less than, I think, the mid-level uh, predictions that were being made. So it was towards the milder end of the spectrum that people were talking about it. You remember we had Mark Chrislip on the show a couple times to talk about this, and he said, we don't know. We'll, we'll tell you when it's over, you know, how bad it's going to be, because it's just there's no way to predict. Will it mutate into a more virulent strain? Well, it didn't. Uh, you know, will it become more contagious? Well, it didn't. Will there be any protection from previous exposures? Well, there, there was. was yeah. the, the absence of the seasonal flu was not even on the radar. That sort of was like came out of nowhere. So it was a bit of a fizzle, which is a good thing. It's absolutely good. You also have to consider the fact that there was a massive uh, vaccination campaign, and that certainly contributed to the decreased spread of the flu. Um, so you know, there's no way to really say how bad it would have been had there not been a vaccine available. Given that, there's a lot of people now who are trying to play Monday morning quarterback, saying, oh, you know, they were predicting this horrible pandemic and it turned out not to be so bad. Therefore, what? You know, therefore, they overreacted or maybe it was even all a, a scam. Maybe it was fake. Uh, politicians are sort of running for cover and everyone seems to be wanting to blame the WHO, the, the World Health Organization. Uh, Pete Townsend? Uh, for overcalling this or maybe, you oh, know. Oh, come on. Yeah, it's, I think, so I think it's BS, right? I think it's, listen, this is, this is the cautionary principle, right? You have to prepare for the worst, hope for the best. You always have to prepare for a storm that may not come. You know, you have to take out, you know, a certain number of healthy appendixes, that, that appendices, appendices, um, <laughs> in order to make sure you're getting all the ones that are about to rupture. You know, you, so you can't sue every surgeon who takes out a healthy appendix because that's BS. So here we have a case where the, the WHO and the CDC and other you know, national um, public health organizations did the best they could. They, they prepared. They were certainly you – know, a year ago, there was no way to know that it wasn't going to turn into the 1918 pandemic right? Yeah, where, yeah. that killed – 20 million people or so. I don't think they can be blamed for being cautious. And, and, and it did meet the criteria for a pandemic. Yeah, uh, Some criticized the WHO for altering their 
threshold for what is a pandemic, but actually they were just bringing it into lo- in line with what a lot of other organizations were defining a pandemic even years earlier. And all they were basically changed was it doesn't have to already be a very virulent strain before we call it a pandemic. It just has to do with how fast it's spreading. And um, yeah. because, you know, because you never know if it's going to mutate. So again, they sort of shifted into more of a precautionary role because if, you know, let's say it mutated in November or December, became virulent. Well, now it's too late to make a vaccine and to get it around. You know, so you always have to do these things before you know how bad it's going to be. So that part of the criticism, I think, is really just silly and even very counterproductive because oh, yeah. essentially you're creating an environment in which the next time there's a potential problem like this that no one's going to want to stick their neck out because – you know, and, and predict, oh, say that we have to prepare for a potential problem because if it doesn't manifest, then they're going to be scapegoated. Uh, how ironic that this reaction could ultimately cause millions of deaths in the future. Yeah. No, I, right? I, I, you know, right, exactly. Uh, I think that that's actually possible. It's risk-benefit, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and you talk about risk-benefit. The risk was, yeah, we, we vaccinated a lot of people. But it turns out that the vaccine, despite all of now the hysterical predictions of all the horrible <laughs> side effects of this vaccines, that didn't manifest either. Oh, yeah. Remember, the, remember the, all I the, forgot, the, I forgot the Guillain-Barre, that. Yeah, the, the Guillain-Barre syndrome scares yeah. because, because, oh, there was, yeah. because there was a real GBS outbreak after the swine flu vaccine in the 70s. But then there wasn't over the last 30 years. So we said, okay, we don't, we don't think it's going to be a problem. But in, you know, in the UK and the United States, they put in very careful monitoring systems to, 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 as an early detection system for any increase in Guillain-Barre syndrome incidents. I got these reminders by email every week. Remember, report any GBS cases, report any GBS cases. And guess how many there were related to the flu vaccine? 24. Zippo. Uh, zero. Not a single case wow. that can be attributed to the, to the H1N1 vaccine. And the, the, Except the Desiree Jennings. Right, right. No. The, and the, the rate of Guillain-Barre syndrome was actually below average. Maybe, maybe because the seasonal flu didn't show up. Who knows? Uh, uh, but there was certainly no increase in, in Guillain-Barre syndrome and really none that can be tied to the vaccine. And so it basically didn't manifest at all. Nor did anything else, you know, just the usual, you know, background, you know, rare side effects to to, to vaccines. But there was no um, outbreak of anything uh, as a result. So th- those warnings were, were likewise complete failures. So the article, however, also covered another area, which is not not exactly related to the question of did this did the WHO overreact, and that was. Did they uh, rely upon experts who had conflicts of interest? This is a tricky question, but I think a really important one to delve into. There is no accusation, you know, in in serious circles. Of course, I said the cranks and gurus are making these accusations, but there's no no serious allegation and no evidence that any of the experts received actual bribes or kickbacks or were being paid in order to to give a certain opinion that would be profitable or in favor of the pharmaceutical industry. That's not what anyone's talking about. Maybe bribes and kickbacks and mafia payoffs are how you do business. But they are not part of the legitimate business world. The next question for us is where to build our factory. How about fantasy land? (laughs) 
if you talk, if you read the article that they published and that others have written about it, what they're talking about is that some of the, these flu experts had received either speaking fees from pharmaceutical companies or had consulted for them or may have even conducted research for them. So those kind of things I consider to be in the gray zone in terms of conflicts of interest. Yes, they are connections to pharmaceutical industry. They're not being paid for their opinion, but you could think that you know, maybe they don't want to alienate you know, a, um, a company that they've worked for, they have a relationship with. Typically, the way um, uh, scientific journals deal with this, you know, especially now increasingly, is to just say, all right, you just have to disclose any ties. The readers can decide for themselves if there are significant conflicts or not, but you have to at least disclose them. This is slightly different because this is not just the readers deciding for themselves. This is experts advising government bodies that are going to be making actual public health decisions. So you could argue for maybe setting the standard a little bit higher. You know, I certainly think that they shouldn't uh, take um, use, use as experts anyone who is actual employee of a pharmaceutical company or who receives a significant portion of their salary or income from their consultation fees or from or as a salary or something from from a pharmaceutical company they shouldn't certainly they certainly shouldn't own any stock in those companies and they shouldn't basically stand to make any money or lose any money based upon the financial fortunes of those companies but if some you know academic expert on the flu was was paid a few hundred dollars or even a thousand dollars to give a talk somewhere on flu vaccines i just don't see that as a conflict of interest to me, that seems so tenuous, and, and it's really a stretch to say that that's going to affect the opinions that they're giving, you know, later years later, to uh, to the WHO or somebody else. I just don't buy that. Um, but again, people could decide for themselves that that's a significant conflict. But that's the kind of thing that we're talking about—just those kind of ties that academic experts have. The, the the point that you know some of the more balanced articles raised, which which has been raised before, is that. Well, who do you think the, you know, the industry is going to go to for advice? They're going to go to the experts, the same people who are going to advise government panels and, and, and government organizations. One of the commenters on, the, on my blog about this today on science-based medicine said, you know, do people think that we have experts in shrink wrap somewhere that we could break out that are <laughs> pristine and have, haven't been doing anything and have no ties to any – any other organization or body. Um, yeah, and, you know, people that don't need an income. Right, right. So, yes, these are serious issues. Yes, we need full disclosure. Yes, we need to consider this. Uh, but we also have to accept the fact that experts are going to be selling their expertise or offering their expertise and getting compensated for it by government, by, other, by academics, by industry. That's what they do. And as long as it's, I think, at a reasonable level and it's not a specific kickback or a real financial um, you know, gain or loss based upon an outcome, I think that we can manage that. But here's the thing. The third sort of topic was that the, the, the WHO, while these conflicts were disclosed to them, they did not make them public. So that, I think, is the only real legitimate criticism of the WHO in all of this. Uh, the you know then director uh, Chan 
was quoted in an article responding to this article in the BMJ saying that uh, that policy was to protect the integrity and independence of the members while doing this critical work, but also to ensure transparency by publicly providing the names of the members as well as information about any interest declared by them at the appropriate time. So she was basically saying, so we were keeping this under wraps while the process is working itself out just to protect them, I guess. Um, and to protect the process. But we were going to disclose it all eventually. But that's not really a good response. I mean, I think that they, they did drop the ball on that one. They should. I think we just should have upfront absolute transparency in these proceedings. Well, the next pandemic, I'm going to be a hermit. <laughs> yeah, you know, we want them to be cautious about things like this, right? Yeah. Well, Evan, it's time for... Who's that noisy? It is, isn't it? All right, let's play last week's noisy. Here we go. Kind of creepy and eerie, isn't it? I love it. It's weird. So what is it? That is uh, radio waves from Saturn. In fact, picked up by the Cassini spacecraft. Cassini, cool. how very appropriate. It's so like, what's actually making the noise? The planet? Well, The, the radio screams of the damned. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is radio waves being generated by, by Saturn. Correct. But it's being trans, you know, translated into sound, right? That's exactly right. correct. That, that's some creepy shit, though. I mean, is that really the noise that, that Saturn is making it? What noise no. is the Earth making? Well, it's, is the Earth screaming, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like when we see... Pictures of the universe right. that are False all color. brightly colored. You know, yeah. that's not actually what it looks like. It's it's the light's been translated to something that we can see. It's the same thing, but for sound. Right. Yeah. Now the Go question ahead. is, what the hell's create making that? What's making the radio waves? That's a good question. Uh, the the article, which came from scientificamerican.com, did not uh, elaborate to that effect. But there are other cool noises on there as well, if you want to look that up under the scientificamerican.com website. Thank you to Bruce in Tampa for sending that to our attention. And the first one to guess correctly was Azenik from the message board. So congratulations on being being the first one correct. Azenik, A-Z-I-N-Y-K. Good job. So what do you got for this week? This week we have the following. Here we go. And then I began uh, to study back uh, the, the relationships between, uh, between uh, the elements for plants, and they are different as the elements for humans, because Kali and Phosphor are actually uh, the friends of each other in the homeopathic materia medica for humans, but in plants, these two substances are each other's enemy. That is clearly the planet Pluto talking to us. Translated. Yeah, talking out of its butt. Or it's not a planet anymore, is it? <laughs> is that a shock Benveniste? Dwarf planet. No, it's not. That's a good guess, though. Mm. Except for the fr- lack of a French accent. <laughs> I couldn't tell what that accent was. At first, I thought it was Mickey Rourke from Iron Man 2. <laughs> it sounded like Massimo for a second. Uh, hopefully, there are enough hints in there that someone will be able to figure it out. So give it your best shot. Good luck, everyone. Okay, and also, very quickly, from what I could find, uh, it sound- it looks like the... Radio waves coming from Saturn are being produced by the lightning storms uh, due to electrostatic discharges. Uh, cool. It's yeah. a, but it just so happens 
that it sounds exactly like somebody from the 50s making up creepy music. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right. It's, it's a retro spaceship kind of sound. Yeah. Yeah. Saturn is behind the times is what you're saying, Jay, right? Well, it takes time for the light to get from Saturn. Yeah. Everything old is new again anyway. I just watched the original <laughs> War of the Worlds last night again, you know, probably for the hundredth time in my life. And like that is exactly the kind of music that they would have in that movie, you know? Yes. <laughs> All right, well, we, I think we have time for one email. Then we're going to go on to a uh, an interview, a very interesting interview coming up. But first, one email. This comes from Vernon Balbert from Oregon, and he writes, It was mentioned that Phobos is falling to Mars because it's orbiting faster than the planet's rotation and that the Earth's moon is spiraling out because its orbital period is longer than a day. Could you check on this? I'm not knowledgeable enough about the mathematics involved, and it doesn't add up with what I've been taught about orbits. It seems to me that orbital speed doesn't involve a planet's rotational speed at all. A stable orbit is dependent on altitude and the masses of the objects involved. As the orbit increases distance from the planet, the slower the object needs to go to remain stable. In other words, the higher the orbit, the slower the orbital velocity. Earth and Mars have very much the same periods, 24 hours versus 24 hours and 40 minutes. And if your statement held true, they'd have very much the same geosynchronous orbit altitude. Yet a geosynchronous orbit over Earth is about twice that of Mars. Then he gives a, gives a link to describe that. So what Vernon is saying is true. It's just not at all what, what uh, we were t- discussing last week. We were talking with uh, Pamela Gay and Fraser Kane about Phobos, one of the two moons of Mars, Deimos being the other one, and the fact that Phobos is spiraling in to Mars, getting closer and closer, and eventually its orbit will decay and it will break up into rings and then rain down onto the, the surface of, of uh, Mars. The reason for this is that because Phobos is orbiting Mars more quickly then Mars is rotating. Uh, that doesn't determine how far Phobos is away from Mars, and the rotational speed of Mars doesn't determine how fast Phobos is orbiting. So that that's not what we were saying at all. It just determines the effect of the tidal forces of Mars on Phobos. So for the Earth-Moon system, the tidal forces between the Earth and the Moon are doing two things. They are slowing down the rotation of the Earth, and they are actually pushing the moon farther away. Eventually, this will happen until the Earth and the moon are tidally locked. Right now, the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, meaning that the moon always shows the same face to the Earth. Its rotation and its orbital period are the same. The Earth will eventually become tidally locked to the moon, where the the Earth will always show the same face to the moon in addition. And in case you're worried, Deimos, by the way, its orbital period is 1.2 days, or about 30.3 hours. So I think Deimos is uh, is safe. Oh, oh, thank goodness. Right. I was worried. Well, let's go on with our interview. Joining us now is Dr. Stephen Matheson. Steve, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. And Steve is an associate professor of biology at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but you have your Ph.D. in neuroscience, and you are a developmental cell biologist. 
I also see on your your website you have a, you run the blog Quintessence of Dust, which is a science blog, and you mentioned there that you are an S N C S E Steve. You're one of the Steves for Project Steve. Ah, yes, I am. Good. So am I. Excellent. <laughs> Can't have enough Steves. <laughs> so we're talking with you tonight because. Uh, because we want you to bring us up to speed on the whole issue of junk DNA, as this has been a topic of discussion uh, within various science blogs responding to uh, some comments that were being made by uh, another Steve, but on the other side, Stephen Myers, and uh, and others at the Discovery Institute. But before we get into that, can you give us a quick description of what our current understanding is of junk DNA? Oh, sure. Well, I have to say right off the bat that most biologists really, uh, I think it's fair to say, don't care at all for that term junk DNA. You will search almost in vain for that phrase in the professional scientific literature. It's very rare. So right off the bat, we have to ask, what does a person mean if they start talking to us about junk DNA? What they probably mean is what we would call non-coding DNA. So this is DNA in our genome that's not actually coding for protein. And the, the amount of, of non-coding DNA in, our gene, in the human genome is, is huge. It's, it's something like 98% of the, of the DNA. The problem with using that phrase junk DNA is it implies that um, we currently or that we at some point in the past thought that everything in the human genome that's non-coding is junk, and no one ever uh, believed that. Mm-hmm. So here's, here are a few things that will help us get the, maybe a perspective on, on the amount of DNA in the human genome that, that is non-coding. At least one-third of the human genome is made up of pieces of DNA that are easily recognizable as basically retroviruses. Yeah. As pieces, pieces of DNA that are known to move to pick up their pieces and move to another part of the genome. Now, let me just say that again. One-third of the human genome, that's one billion base pairs. Mm (laughs) One-third. Okay, so if we were to start there, instead of starting with some debate that, that you mentioned that has been going on on blogs about, say, introns, which are pieces of DNA that are sort of cut out uh, during an editing process, during a gene expression, if we start instead with gigantic tracts of the human genome and, that are composed of things that we actually know about, we know what they are. They're pieces of DNA that move around that look a lot like retroviruses. If we start there, if we start there, then we quickly realize what do we know about junk DNA or, in other words, about non-coding DNA? Well, we know that one-third of our genome seems to be made of non-coding DNA that doesn't seem to have a purpose other than to pick up its pieces and jump to another part of the genome. How's that for a start? So it's not only not coding, it's not coding for a protein. It also, as far as we can tell, doesn't have any regulatory function, doesn't serve any function in the DNA at all. But beyond making a pure argument from ignorance or, you know, we don't know what it does, we could say positively about it that we actually recognize these bits of DNA as bits of retroviruses that got stuck in our genome at some point in our history. Yeah, I think that's a really important point to make. 
So we don't look at, there are pieces of DNA, huge sections of DNA in the human genome where we would say, hey, we don't know what that does. Yeah. There are. But then there are 1 billion base pairs worth of elements that we look at them and we say, no, I know exactly what that is. Now, let's, let's add this, Steve. Um, every now and then, a pe- one of those retroviral sequences, it looks like the genome captured it and put it to some kind of use. Right. So we can never make this extreme argument that, well, there's absolutely positively no way that a retroviral sequence or a, or a, a jumping gene in the genome can ever be of use. That, that's a silly thing to say, and we know that that's not true. We, we use the term domesticated to describe what happens to these things sometimes. But there are millions of them, <laughs> and there are three billion base pairs worth of them. And you're, you're correct to point out, we're not ignorant. We know what they are. We know what they do. Um, so what? So we have the retroviruses, we have uh, uh, coding DNA, regulatory DNA, just to get that out of the way. There are pieces of the DNA that don't code for proteins, but we know that they're forming some regulatory function. They're turning genes on and off, for example. Yes, yes. Now, a lot of the, the recent discussion, though, has been focusing on introns, which, as you mentioned, are the parts of the gene that are spliced out and that don't contribute to the ultimate translation into a protein. So again, it seems yeah, like correct. it seems like they're they're just being discarded. Uh, but what? But the, the story is always more complicated than than the, the most. The, the simplest thing that we think of when we first start to investigate these things. So what, what do we know today about introns and, and the role that they're playing, if any? Yeah, sure. So a couple of things we know. One thing we know is that the introns can be gigantic, um, that many genes have a, a very small minority of their space devoted to coding sequence and 90% or more of their space devoted to introns. So introns can be huge. Another thing we know about them is that, as one of the, the Discovery Institute bloggers pointed out correctly, that introns, because they can be spliced out or not from a gene, give us the opportunity in the genome to make different forms of a gene. Mm-hmm. So I hope that was clear. This is the concept of alternative splicing. Now, I, I simplified it there, and I don't know if all molecular biologists would agree with me that introns can be differentially spliced, but that's not the point. This blogger said, hey, what about alternative splicing? Isn't that a function of introns? And technically, he's right. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, then the problem is that in, in these weird culture war disputes that we have, then that, that these folks conclude, therefore introns are functional and they're not junk. And that's a that's a kind of weird argument. <laughs> These yeah. things are huge. They're, they're huge in many cases. They're spliced out and discarded. And yes, sometimes within them, there are regulatory elements. I, I should say, by the way, Steve, there are sequences that look like regulatory elements. The number of introns that have been shown experimentally to harbor functional elements or regulatory elements is very small. So, you know, experimentally, we don't know just how much function resides inside introns. But I guess the point is, and the point that I think some of us were trying to make in this dispute, was simply these are large pieces of DNA that are spliced out and removed, and 
they're huge, and to argue that all of that sequence within them has function is, uh, to many of us, just plain strange. Right. I, I can't remember if it was you, but I think you know one of the, one of the science bloggers commented on like say that is like you know finding a useful piece in a junk pile and then saying well the junk pile has function then, but actually you just yeah, found exactly. something small in that pile that and and it it makes sense that you know because of mutations and and whatnot that um, occasionally by chance alone that you know th- th- there'll be some purpose will emerge for some previously unused bit of DNA or stretch of DNA. Uh, not having a purpose at any one point in time doesn't mean that um, you know DNA sequences will be forever junk, if you will, or useless or not used by an organism. So any piece of DNA could potentially at some point in time have function. Exactly. And, and I guess the other point is that any location in a genome can potentially be a place where a little bit of regulatory DNA can be moved. Mm-hmm. No, no one was ever suggesting that introns are places where there could never be a, a regulatory sequence. That's not what we meant. But yeah, you're correct. No one was ever stating that a piece of DNA that looks like it's worthless couldn't someday become functional. That's yeah. right. I, I would put it this way. The, the, the genome doesn't look like something that was designed from the top down. It sure doesn't. Yeah, but to be maximally efficient and compact, et cetera. It looks like something that's really messy. That, yeah. and, and, and while junk is certainly not a technical term, as you say, I think it's no. one that the, the public can readily wrap their mind around. There's a lot of DNA that in the genome that doesn't have to be there, right? Right, exactly. I mean, John Avis has recently made this case pretty strongly, both in a book and in a recent paper. He's an evolutionary biologist at, at UC Irvine, and he, he's, he's arguing very strongly that the, the human genome is, is, is just a mess, <laughs> um, and that it really doesn't have signs of, of what, what most of us would consider an intelligent design. Mm-hmm. I should also should add, I thought, Steve, you made an interesting point about the way the argument goes, the way it's made by some of these creationist folks. It seems as though they think that when science identifies something, let's call it an intron, that that thing belongs to a category, and that if we can assign function to any one member of that category, then suddenly that whole category acquires that characteristic. It's yeah. a very strange way of reasoning in something as sloppy as biology and genetics to the idea that we would look at something and assign it to a category and then, you know, it's just kind of yeah. strange. <laughs> My biological brain just doesn't work that way. Right. Well, I mean, all their reasoning is strange. It has to be because they're wrong. And <laughs> That's right. They don't have any legitimate arguments, so of course they have to make strange ones. They really have no choice, and I think this is... Well, that's true. And since we're on that topic, it's not only that the retroviruses in the DNA are not don't occur in a random pattern. They actually provide a completely independent line of evidence for common descent, right? In that yes. we could say, oh, look at this. This this retrovirus was inserted before the you know the common ancestor of humans and chimps, and humans and chimps have the same piece of junk at the same place in their DNA. Even more than that. Yeah, tell us about that a little bit more. The same piece of junk or the same retrovirus inserted in the same place 
and it's got a funny little mutation at position number 912 in both of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's even that specific. Right. And so you look you look at this thing. Sometimes sometimes that 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 virus landed, you know, right on top of a gene or something like that. But but more, more to the point, where these things land then will will be exactly the same in two species that are known to have a common ancestor and be completely absent in some other species that is known not to have a common ancestor with that first pair. I think this is underappreciated, actually. And I made this point once on my blog that 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 the the creationist argument always focuses on whether these things have function. And I, the funny thing is, well, even if they do, there's something very strange about a mobile genetic element landing in the same place in these two genomes of these two different species, and just happening to line up with the phylogenetic tree. Hey, hey, guys, what what would you think at, at some point in the future? I wonder what the creationist response would be if if we using using synthetic you know synthetic life synthetic biology and genetic manipulation say we create a genome that that really just gets rid of all the all the non-coding DNA non-regulatory genes you know get rid of all the viral genes everything that's really just not necessary for life to you know for say a, a bacterium to uh to to exist and reproduce and metabolize and, and just kind of prove basically that that the genome really is for for lots of species or I guess for all of them is just such a huge chunk that are completely and absolutely so unnecessary but uh, there's two things I would love to say in response to that one is evolution has already done that experiment there are vertebrate genomes uh, that are absolutely tiny compared to the human genome with the same number of genes in them. The puffer fish is a famous example. Really small genome. Birds have smaller genomes than we do. And mm-hmm. they have smaller genomes because they have restricted mobile elements. They've already uh, done experiments. The second thing I would say is if a creationist wants to claim, for example, that a, mute, a mutated pseudogene for an olfactory receptor sitting in the human genome actually has function, why don't they get a grant to do a knockout experiment in, say, a mouse and test their hypothesis? This is how the rest of the world does science, right? Right. So if you think that introns are so bloody important, why don't you do the experiment? It isn't that hard. You need money and you need time. But go ahead, write that grant, send it in, and let's see. Let's do the experiment. Well, it's not get crazy now. <laughs> actually, start doing experiments, <laughs> making oh, predictions. Okay. Yeah, come I on. Because then they might be wrong. Right? Who, who wants that? Now, you, yeah. I was, you bring up the other thing. The last thing I was going to mention: the, the the fact that different species have incredibly different sized yeah. genomes that don't really relate in, in any of yeah orders of magnitude without. Really yeah. saying anything about the complexity of the organisms themselves or right. the number of genes that they need, and um, so I, do, do we. Why do we think, by the way, that say species like the puffer fish, puffer fish have such small genomes? Is it just chance, or you know that there's going to be a bell curve, and somebody's got to be at the low end of the bell curve, or it, is there some selective process that is selecting for a, a smaller, more efficient genome? Do, do, is there any hypothesis there? Yeah, there's one good strong hypothesis. In the case of the pufferfish, I don't actually remember or know what that hypothesis is. In the case of flying animals, there is an interesting hypothesis, which is that more DNA means bigger cells. 
This is a very interesting correlation that's been known for quite some time. And so the thinking of flying animals, by the way, I said mm -hmm. birds, but this streamlining of the genome applies also to flying mammals, which is very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the theory is that, and this is a theory, it's a hypothesis, streamlining of the genome is beneficial for organisms that want to get off the ground. Because their cells could be smaller. Well, right. And, yeah. and, their and their metabolic wastage is less. And so, if this theory is correct, then there is selective pressure to downsize the genome. Or, or, of course, you could also argue selective pressure to not let it get bloated. Same difference, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, for flying animals. And so, one thing... So, so, for example, you can look at animals that have wings but don't fly, and their genomes still get bloated. Oh, wow. Isn't that cool? So the point is there's an interesting hypothesis right there that might account for at least one of the selective pressures that would act to control whether genomes get big or small. But other than that, it, there doesn't seem to be any downside to having a massively bloated genome. Right, which it seems odd, but I guess that's just that's what nature's telling us. It does seem odd. There isn't let's just say there isn't a crippling downside. Yeah. Right. Right. As in sexually reproducing organisms that what they get in return is more genetic diversity. They have more raw material. It kicks evolution into overdrive a little bit because you've got so many more opportunities for some vile DNA to, to move to an, a section and give you a, a beneficial adaptation. Yep. Well, Steve, those are the topics I wanted to cover. I, that you covered it very well. I appreciate it. That was fun. It's fun to talk to someone who gets it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, Steve Matheson writes the Quintessence of Dust Science blog, which has been featured in the Open Lab in 2007 and 2008, which is a uh, those science books that essentially collect the best of science blogging. So you were you were included that in those two years. Do you have any other mm -hmm. projects you'd like to tell us about? Oh, well, I'm working on a book right now that is going to uh, examine the common features uh, of the biological world and how design fails to explain them. Great. Well, definitely let us know when the book is coming out. Maybe we'll get you back on the show. That would be great. All right, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Item number one. New animal research suggests that drinking coffee decreases the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Ugh, another coffee one? Item number two, new research suggests that the Earth was larger prior to the impact that resulted in the moon than following the impact and perhaps even larger than its current size. And item number three, scientists have developed plastic antibodies and have demonstrated that they have biological activity. Bob, since you complained, you get to go first. Oh. <laughs> Plastic antibodies with biological activity. Hmm, that's interesting. I hope that's true. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that that that's science. Uh, we're we're just getting so good with uh with making these these constructs that are just so tiny. Although I wonder if they use self assembly for something quite this tiny. Um, but uh, I'm gonna say that one is science. It yeah, number two here. This kind of makes sense that the Earth was larger prior to the impact. The Mars-sized object, planetoid or planet that hit us, 
hit us at the perfect angle. Pretty much any other angle would have had uh, much, you know, would not have resulted in a nice sized Earth with a with a nice moon. Um, I could see, you know, some of the Earth kind of going into orbit permanently or um, possibly possibly being completely ejected. All right, so I'm going to say that one. That just makes sense to me. That it would that the size would be different, um, bigger or smaller. So that therefore the uh, the coffee one here, drinking coffee decreases the risk of developing diabetes. I can't think of any reason why that would be so or would not be so, off the top of my head. And since the other two I can justify, I'm going to have to say that that one is fiction. All right, Rebecca. Oh man. <laughs> Um, I, I, I wanted some more opinions before I go. Um, <laughs> you got the one that matters, my friend. <laughs> I was going to say, you wanted Jay and Evan's yeah. opinion. Okay. Well, Bob sunk me last week, so good no, point. Fa- no offense, Bob. GWB doesn't always work. <laughs> I, I can believe that um, coffee decreases the risk of developing type 2 diabetes because every week we hear that coffee <laughs> right. either cures or causes or kills. like heart disease, cancer. I mean, why not? Why not type 2? Why not the diabetes as <laughs> Wilfred Brimley would say? Sugar sugar diabetes. <laughs> um, yeah, I love that one. Sugar. Yeah. I got sugar diabetes. As opposed to <laughs> as opposed to right? <laughs> And and of course, I don't see uh, of course the earth was larger prior to the impact that resulted in the moon because prior to the impact it had the moon in it right <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't that's it that's a theory that doesn't even make sense to me well wait what about the thing that hit us maybe i'll keep going yeah, what exactly did hit us a dinosaur right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're big right <laughs> how amazing would that be was it in haley's comet <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just picturing like a Tyrannosaurus Rex firing into the earth. Um, <laughs> and then a plastic antibody that demonstrates biological activity. I don't, I don't understand that either. What is, what does that mean? Demonstrate biological activity. Does that mean that it's reproducing and? Pooping? No, I mean it's eating? it's functioning. It's functioning as an antibody. Yeah. Okay. I can believe that too. <laughs> oh man! Just a big I'm believer. Gonna, I'm going to say that um, the the moon one is false. Then because there's just no way that why would a dinosaur fly into the planet like that? <laughs> it doesn't okay. even. It makes no sense. That's solid reasoning. All right, Jay. <laughs> So, new animal research suggests that drinking coffee decreases the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Yes. New research suggests that the Earth was larger prior to impact. The thing I don't know is how big was the the thing that hit the Earth? If that... Mars-sized. If it was Mars-sized and it hit the Earth, and then a piece big enough to make the moon... You know, ejected out and then eventually coalesced into the moon. Then it's it's very plausible that that thing that hit the Earth was was larger, and it, and the Earth size increased along with in, you know with creating the moon. So, okay, that's that's the only way I can explain that, right, Rebecca? Yeah, no, totally. What? Yeah. <laughs> and then you shot uh, moon the what now? Purple monkey dishwasher. <laughs> plastic antibodies. <laughs> I I think that that. 
the plastic antibodies part is the part that Steve's t- trying to trick us on because it makes it sound really plasticines funny. But scientists have developed. If you just take the word plastic out of there and just say science have developed antibodies and have demonstrated that they have biological activity, that's sure. That, that makes sense. So I'll go with Rebecca and say that the moon one is fake. Okay, Evan? Always go with me. That's right. I, I was having an issue with the drinking coffee one because it's new animal research and, you know, animals aren't very good at research, you know, little bunnies and lab coats and stuff. So I was thinking that one might be fiction. But having having heard all the opinions, I must agree with my colleagues, join them as we all go over the cliff together in saying that the research about the Earth being larger prior to the impact is fiction. All right. Well, that means you all agree well, that scientists have developed plastic antibodies and have demonstrated that they have biological activity. You guys all buy the plastic antibodies. Oh yeah, plastic meaning what though? That they're made of plastic. <laughs> that they're o- that they're plastic oil based. Means, yes. Define plastic. <laughs> <laughs> and that one is science. Yeah, yeah. But of course, what they did that's awesome. was yeah, they used a uh, a polymer, a molecularly imprinted polymer nanoparticle. That means plastic, Jay. Very small piece of plastic. Then they imprinted it by essentially baking it with the target. Um, which was a toxin. They, you know, they eat away the toxin, so you're left with. Then the toxin was melatonin, right? So you're, then you're left with this little piece of plastic that has an imprint of the melatonin in it, which means that it would bind to melatonin, right? That's basically how receptors work. They're physically shaped in three dimensions, like a lock and key, right? They're physically shaped in such a way that they actually bind to whatever they're supposed to bind to. And what the new research shows is that in in mice that uh, these pl- plastic antibodies, these polymer antibodies, will actually will bind to the melatonin. And what they did was they Evan, mice or mammals, just in case. Yeah, you were that's wondering. true. That's very true. They challenged them with with melatonin, which should kill them. I mean, it's almost it's a very toxic substance. And the uh, the ones that were tr- the mice that were treated with the plastic antibodies had a higher probability of surviving. So the, the notion being that the antibodies were actually binding to and inactivating the melatonin. Very interesting. So it could be a way, essentially, of making wow. uh, yeah something that you can inject that will you know bind to and inactivate or precipitate out or maybe even target the immune system against uh, something you know that's a, a toxin or an infection or a virus or something in the body to give the body a chance to uh, to you know wage its own immune reaction against it right so it could be actually a very exciting potential new medical intervention didn't see that one coming all right well let's go well, I guess we'll go back to number one. New animal research suggests that drinking coffee decreases the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. Bob, you think this one is fiction. The rest of you think this one is science. And this one is science. Oh, oh. two weeks in a row. No. Sorry, Bob. Eat it. And oh. yeah, Rebecca is right in that there's a lot of research being done on caffeine. So that kind of automatically makes it believable. But yeah, this is interesting. So this is not the first study to to show this, um, to suggest that there may be this link uh, be, between drinking coffee and decreased risk of, of diabetes. But this uh, is animal research, so it's more of experimental than observational. So that adds more weight to this hypothesis. And essentially, what they did was 
these were researchers uh, publishing in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry, and they exposed mice that are genetically almost guaranteed to spontaneously develop diabetes. And they gave this, so it's a, they're mice used in diabetes research, obviously. They gave um, one you know, group coffee for five weeks. They gave the other group just hot water as a control. Um, and then they also uh, gave another group uh, water with caffeine. And the, the coffee group had a decreased uh, incidence of type 2 diabetes. And they also had improvement in what they're called fatty liver. So their, their liver function was better. Uh, and they had better glycemic control. And the, uh, the caffeine had similar effects. So it not, this study suggests that not only does coffee prevent the development of diabetes, at least in this mouse model, but that, it, that the caffeine is playing a significant role. Whereas previous studies really didn't separate out the caffeine and it was made it sound like it was probably other things in the coffee that were really the active ingredients. So maybe it's both. Maybe it's the caffeine plus other constituents in coffee that, that are important for the full effect. Yay. Yay. Which means new research suggests that the Earth was larger prior to the impact that resulted in the moon than following the impact and perhaps even larger than its current size is fiction. Ah. <laughs> what? Yes, for those who have been following the previous two, you could have inferred that. Um, and now, Bob, you're right that the, uh, the estimate is that the size of the object that hit Earth prime was Mars-sized, but at the time, the Earth was probably the size of Venus. So you basically had something the size of Venus hitting something the size of Mars. The result was the Earth and the Moon. I hear Venus size doesn't matter. Oh, Don't let God. anyone tell you that. Yeah, so it didn't. It, in order for it to have gotten didn't we smaller, fire Evan it, earlier? It, I, mean, show? Yeah, I, thought, I do <laughs> seem to remember that. It, it would have involved, as, as you as you suggested, Bob, you know, ejecting material from the Earth Moon system, which it, which didn't you know, probably didn't happen. At least nothing significant. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure some material got away. Right? There was stuff. Like there are pieces of Mars on Earth because piece, little bits of Mars get ejected and leave the gravitational, you know, control of Mars orbit the Sun, and then you know some right. of those pieces hit the Earth. So I'm sure there is stuff you know from that collision floating around the solar system, um, but still the, the the Earth was bigger after the impact. What the new study there was a new study, however, that did um, look at this collision or has implications for this collision. And what they've discovered was that it happened actually later than was previously thought. Now, the, the really? uh, previous estimates were that this collision happened about 30 million years after the formation of the solar system. Wow. So the Earth oh, was only about 30 million years. Yeah, so the solar system is about 4.5 billion years or 4,537 million years old. And they were thinking it happened about 30 million years after the Earth was formed. Baby Earth. A little baby infant Earth. A However, a lot of material still floating around the, the place at that yeah. time. Oh, yeah. Lots yeah. Of the, this new evidence suggests that it may have been 150 million years after the formation of the solar system. So oh. It's still re- pretty much right at the beginning, but 150 million years instead of only 30 million years. Okay. You know, so blah, blah, blah. We win. Yeah. <laughs> so good job, everyone, Bob. Two weeks in a row, man. That's, yeah. that's unusual Can't for you. Remember the last time that happened? Yeah. Sorry, Bob. Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? This week's quote was sent to me by a listener named Matthias Davidson. Right, Matthias? M A T T I A S. 
Matthias. No, I think it's Matthias. Yeah, I'd go with Matthias. Matthias. Ptolemy. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a quote from Sir Humphrey Davy. Nothing is so fatal to the progress of the human mind as to suppose that our views of science are ultimate, that there are no mysteries in nature, that our triumphs are complete, and that there are no new worlds to conquer. Sir Humphrey Davy was a Cornish chemist who discovered several chemical elements and studied the human body's response to electricity. Just trip on that for a second. He studied the body's human, the body's response to electricity. Mm Mm-hmm. By electrocuting people, right? Well, I mean, you can use small electri- electrical shocks. You could use corpses. You could use corpses. I could loan you some. That's true. I shock people every day. <laughs> you drop your yes, pants You're going to get arrested <laughs> for that one day, Steve. Scientists are constantly shocked. Just read the headlines. <sighs> you know, for diagnostic purposes, of course. <laughs> yeah. I have and personal pleasure. Yeah, we got some announcements. Go ahead. Uh, you could start, Rebecca. Okay. I'm going to be at the... Gods and Politics com- Conference in Copenhagen um, next week, June 18th through the 20th, along with Richard Dawkins and James Randi and PZ Myers and Vic Stenger and a bunch of other cool people. Very cool. And Tam London tickets went on sale, tamlondon.org. It's going to have all those people plus Alan Moore and Corey Doctorow and Robin Ince and Sue Blackmore and Richard Wiseman and Tim Minchin and Everybody. Everybody's just going to be there. Everybody except for you if you haven't bought a ticket yet, so you should. Also, you're talking about Tam London. There's two other Tams that we need to mention. Yeah. Of course, Tam 8 in Las Vegas, July 8th to 11th. Still time to register. We're hoping to see a lot of our listeners there. And there's a lot of interesting things happening. We have um, the science-based medicine workshops, uh, 1 and 2, they are not redundant, so there will be different material in those two workshops. Rebecca, you're giving but a feminism... you can skip the second one to come to my workshop. There is a, Rebecca <laughs> is giving a feminism in skepticism <laughs> workshop. Yes. Uh, that's a tough call. <laughs> Which one no, are you going to go to? And, and those are happening on the Thursday, right? <laughs> that's the Thursday, right? That's Thursday the 8th. On Friday night, there's the SGU dinner which is uh, filling up quickly. So, so red, you can register for that through the regular TAM registration. Yep. And we will be having a live auction of cool stuff that you want to have during the SGU dinner, exclusively for SGU dinner attendees. Steve, what, what's going to be in that auction, Steve? All Jay's underpants. <laughs> the coolest one is that we are actually going to auction off a guest rogue seat. That's right. Um, we will auction off the right to be a guest rogue for one episode, upcoming episode of the SGU. Bidding will start at $100,000. <laughs> yeah, we wish. So we have TAM 8, then we have TAM London, and we have TAM Australia. You can Ooh. go to tamaustralia.org. Registration begins June 20th for members of the Australian Skeptics and for the JREF, and then in, I think, uh, early July for everybody. So. We, the whole SGU will be there. George Hab will be there. James Randi, also a lot of cool skeptics. We're really looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Well, thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Of course. Thank you, Shirley. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe.
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 